Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with Brian McVickers, which some of you may remember from the podcast we did about crossing the Pacific in a sailboat. If you haven't listened to that one, you may enjoy it, especially if you love all things sailing, because it was quite an amazing experience that we had together. But Brian has actually been with the business since the very beginning. Brian was actually employee number one. There's no doubt that Overland Journal and Expedition Portal wouldn't exist today without all of Brian's really hard work. So... Thank you for all of that, Brian. Uh, it's been a wonderful pleasure. I think we're going on yeah, eight, at least, 18 yeah. to 20 years That's somewhere right. around that there. Kn- that we've known each other, exactly. That's right. Yeah, from, uh, I think you bought you bought my grandpa's welder from me. It was the first time that we... <laughs> the, that we the Lincoln Tombstone. That's yeah, right. Red box. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that was a very long time ago. That was. You only had one kid at that point, and they were, they were in a car seat. That's so. right. Now I have two <laughs> near full adults. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I made people. It's crazy how... Well, they say that you haven't officially join the human race until you have kids. Until you've so made people. I, I, right. st- I remain an alien. Yeah. So thanks for being on the podcast, Brian. And, oh, and Brian it. was with me for uh, several days at the SEMA show. And that's what we're going to talk about today is our impressions of the show, the things that we liked, the new products that we encountered along the way that we found to be impressive. We also spent quite a bit of time uh, with Toyota and their launches at the show. It was a really impressive launch this year. Yeah, also Lexus as well. So these are really important developments for those of us that love overland travel. And for many of our listeners, they also love Toyotas. And there's some really exciting news that's coming out. And we're going to talk about that today as well. But let's start off with, Brian, what was your overall impression of the show? You know, it's, it's funny. We were, a couple of us were counting it out. I think this is my 18th. 17th or 18th SEMA show. Sure. You know, if you go to the SEMA show, the first couple of times, you're just completely overwhelmed. Right. And now I think we're all at the point, at least we're at the point of you can be there for two or three days and feel like you've really absorbed it. I think that compared to last year, the the vibe uh, and the overall attitude of, of the show and the attendees was much more positive. I would agree. Yeah. Um, I think we've recovered from that you know, the, a few years of not being able to do that show and not being able to have those types of events. Last year was very light. I think a, I think a lot of companies, especially the larger corporate companies, were very timid on how do we how do we get back into the SEMA program? Is it worthwhile for us to do? Should we be going to it? And I think that they've realized that it's it's a worthwhile show for them to go to if they do it the right way. What I noticed more significantly is the activations were a little bit different. Yeah, um, the companies that did go to the show and did show up, it, it seemed a little bit more realistic in execution. Sure. Where in years past, you know, we all joke about the SEMA vehicle, right? And they were getting quite, you know, kind of uh, obnoxious, a little obnoxious. Yeah, yeah it's a great word. There's for still it. a lot of that. There is, but I, I felt that, that it, there was less, For sure. less of that. Um, you know, they used to be obnoxious and unrealistic, and now I think that that companies have kind of said, "Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna do this, but we're gonna make it we're gonna make it attainable for consumer, and we're gonna represent things that the consumer would actually do on their own." And, and I've always been so confused why companies would put these vehicles <clears throat> in their booths that are complete distraction from the brand. Like, let's say that they sell uh, a piece of electronics and this vehicle is so over the top, you can't actually see 
or even begin to find the product that they sell. You don't know what they're selling. Exactly. Yeah. And and it also, I believe, oftentimes is incongruent with the brand messaging as well. Whereas now you see, you go into ARB, which ARB has always done a good job, but you go into the ARB booth and you see two vehicles, a Bronco and a Tacoma, that we would all love to drive. Mm-hmm. And the ARB booth, to their compliment, they... They were very clean this year. Yeah, it was an incredibly clean booth. Yep. They had, uh, I think, they had a locker display. Yep, they had a few vehicles with product, you know, installed. Yep, but beyond that, I mean, there was walking space. You could yep. walk through the booth. You yep. could you could look at the vehicles without feeling crowded. Yeah, that's another thing I noticed about the event as a whole. It's it's still recovering, and so it has it has fewer vendors and it has fewer attendees than it used to say four or five years ago. No question. Okay. Four or five years ago, it was shoulder to shoulder. You can't even move around. You can't have a conversation. Now it's just kind of, it's almost uh, like a minimalist design apartment, right? I mean, there's, there's space to, to be in the space. So which I think is a, it it is a benefit. And, and to talk about the things that we noticed that were absent, I think the one that is the most challenging is the absence of the tire brands. So the things that benefit you and I being there is that we get to interact with all of these companies in a very efficient way. They're all right there. Mm-hmm. We can have quick conversations. We can set up meetings, find out about new products that we can share with our audience. But when there's essentially no tire manufacturers, none of the tire manufacturers that we use were well represented. Um, there were tire manufacturers there that were notable, like Max. Maxis is a great brand and all mm-hmm. those other things. But And Cooper, also another great brand. But when you don't, there's no BF Goodrich, there's no Goodyear, there's no, you know, those are things that I think are, are absent. Yeah, it it was very surprising. Um, I found it to be a bit disappointing as a category, underrepresented. Cooper had, uh, Cooper Tires had their booth. Um, They kind of have this foundational Keystone booth that's there. Every event, it's in the same location. The first one you um, see when you walk down the right. stairs. They'll, yeah. they'll probably never give it up. And they never yeah. should. They had their the, a very nice activation. They had a um, they had a, a Jeep Gladiator, um, and then they also what got a lot of attention for them. They had an, a Rivian R one T with bigger tires. With on bigger tires, yeah. they were on. I think they were oh, maybe two. 265, 75, R20s. Yeah. Some somewhere around that. So almost a 35, yeah. Yeah. And it and they had it lifted all the way to, you know, the neat thing about that vehicle is the, the air, air, air suspension. Yeah. So, you know, show mode, they had it in in high rock crawl mode, yeah. which is 15 inches of ground clearance. Cooper was well represented. Toyo Tires was also there. I think they had a they had an activation outside. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, they had a kind of an engagement with the attendees. They yeah. did. So you had to know that they were there. Yeah. Um, I think what happens with that show is you get inside, and then you have to make a real effort to go outside of the building and find for the out, outdoor engagement. Yeah, sure. So Toyo was there. They also had an event, um, a nighttime event. So I they were there and represented. The only other company that I think really had a footprint there was, um, was Milestar Tires. Okay. So they had a, a fairly large booth, several display vehicles, several tires on display. Sure. Um, and they had a good size staff there as well. Okay. Maxis, I also found the Maxis booth, but I'm not quite sure what they were doing in the sense that they had a side-by-side. Yeah. Uh, and they had a couple of tires on display. Um, but other than that, it was just a logoed backdrop. And yeah. they had a, they did have a big staff there for the size of the booth. So yeah. it was well attended uh, and well paid attention to. Well, and I think the big news this year was the prime 
spot in the central hall is normally occupied by the Ford Motor Company. Yeah, they gave that up. And Ford was not there, even though Ford makes more super appropriate overland vehicles than they ever have in the past. So for us, that's a little bit of a disappointment to not have Ford there because they are doing like their, their Rangers got great payload. They've got the Bronco now, which is a really fun wagon option for people that are looking for high capability plus independent front suspension. So they didn't, they didn't have a booth, but Toyota took over the space, which is quite the coup. And Toyota is the world's largest automotive manufacturer. So it's not surprising that they are now in this key position within SEMA. For me, it was so amazing to go to the press launch where they pulled back the curtain on a new model lineup. Um, It's basically a package lineup that they're going to have for the Toyota brand. And they pull back the curtain and it's this Tundra that is lifted. It has it has front recovery points and it's got a winch tray and it's got a, a rear bumper and it's got a rack and it's got a, a, a roof tent on the top of it and a custom livery as well. What was amazing for me is you're listening to the vice president of marketing for Toyota. I swear every fifth word she said was the word overland. So what we went to, uh, including that reveal, I think we went to three or four press launches yeah. or press you know, presentations with them. Sure. I never heard the word off-road. Yeah, exactly. And, and with their history of, of TRD off-road yeah. and to completely remove that term from their vocabulary, yeah. I never heard the word off-road. I repeatedly heard overland and vehicle-based adventure, Yeah, which is, which the, is how we define overland. That's right. right? Exactly. It was very inspiring to see such a large and, and influential company to make that shift. And it's also Uh, no plan for the future. It's no surprise to us because when we started the magazine, almost 70% of our readers had Toyotas. If it it was a Land Cruiser or a Forerunner or a Tacoma or a Tundra or something like that. And we've watched we've watched the Google metrics over the years where where the term off-road is is declining and the term overlanding is taking over. That's correct. Yeah. Um, In twenty sixteen they you know, overlanding eclipsed off-road for search results. So it can be boiled down. Some of it's semantics, but it's, it's, it's inspiring to see them using the terminology. Well, and it's really important for the world's largest automotive manufacturer that does make arguably some of the best overland vehicles ever produced. And they continue to make those uh, for them to fully embrace the thing that we all care about so much. And what I thought was most exciting was there were several hints that were not only given during the press launch, but later by the Toyota personnel, whereas they're not just providing this additional capability with the Trail Hunter package, but it's also going to address payload at the same time. So that is the thing we have been asking for from Toyota for a very long time, which is we need to be able to add the additional capability uh, components that we need. But then we also have to have enough payload for water and food and people. And also, it's common for overlanders to tow a trailer. And that and the, the tongue weight of the trailer goes against payload. If you have a Tacoma with a 1,000-pound payload and you put in three adults, so now you're at, let's call it five to 600 pounds of people, and then you add 500 pounds or 400 pounds or even 300 pounds of tongue weight, you now have like enough payload left for a sandwich. Right. Whereas if they if they now come out with these packages that have front winch tray and they've got a lift kit, larger tires, additional accessories, but then it retains the original payload, 
then now you've got something really to work with. They're also taking ownership of the fact that people bring stuff with them. Yeah. And they're in- encouraging it with their new accessory program. That's right. So I can't remember all the brands that are involved. I know ARB is one of the brands involved. Um, Dometic is as well. Dometic. Yeah. Toyota is now essentially going to be offering everything from recovery boards to chairs and refrigerators and rooftop tents and all of those items that campers and the overlanders are going to going to add to their vehicle anyway, they realize that they're going to be adding this to the vehicle anyhow. So they're going to supply this at the dealership so that the consumer can now roll those roll those expenses into their monthly car payment if they choose to do so. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how realistically attainable they make that if if the prices get, you know, increased uh, above what you know, your typical retail price would be because it's at the dealership, which is always a concern, but yeah. they seem to be pretty genuine in the effort. And I think that they are going with brands though, that already have good map pricing protection. So it will allow Toyota to be competitive because there's enough retained margin because of those brands and the map pricing. It's going to be so easy for people to get into the activity. And here's the other key is that when you purchase that through a Toyota dealership, then none of those accessories void the vehicle's warranty. That's right. So the fact that you can roll it into a payment and that the the products have a Toyota part number, they've been vetted for what Toyota refers to as QDE, um, which is their quality expectations of a product. It means they've met a Toyota QDE. They've also, they know that it works with the vehicle and it won't do damage to the vehicle. So it doesn't void the warranty. So you can literally drive out of a Toyota dealership with a fully outfitted trail hunter with all of the accessories you want, including your fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got a single payment and it goes with the warranty of the vehicle. And from what I understood for manufacturers that might be interested, it, it looks like they have a, a sign up for that program. Yeah. So they're still accepting product manufacturers and, and brands to submit their product to be a part of that program. And I saw the Toyota folks walking around the the hall, the West Hall, talking to off-road accessory manufacturers to, yeah. to try to figure out what products would be appropriate for the program. But it's going to launch with 100 products and they're going to just build it from there. Again, it's just super important <coughs> for those listening that this is, we're not being paid anything by Toyota to do this. Uh, we're not, this is not an advertisement for Toyota. Uh, we have no financial relationship with Toyota, uh, but we really are big believers in not only the, the company, but in the direction that they're going. Well, it's significant to see an OEM like, truly embrace the overlanding space. Yeah. And they've made it very clear that they're doing that both on the Toyota side and into the Lexus side, you know, with the GX series. And the, it's a little bit, you know, higher end, a little bit more luxury. They have full intention of saying, hey, they've realized that people are using the Land Cruisers and, you know, with not being able to get Land Cruisers too much anymore, they're, yep. they're starting to say, well, okay, you can look at the Lexus side. It's a little bit more luxurious, but yep. they've, they had two vehicles completely built out for overlanding and they were very excited at how they built them out and they were incredibly practical. Yeah. Um, sometimes you see companies say, hey, we're going to build an overlanding rig. And it's just like not realistic at all. Yeah. Um, or they get it wrong. They get it. Yeah. And, but these two vehicles are really nicely done. Uh, the one had a great storage system in the back. And then the other was outfitted with everything. Hidden winch, you know, a little bit of a lift, um, bigger tires, roof rack, and uh, a rooftop tent as well. And, and I was having a conversation with one of the Lexus executives and he looked me right in the eye and he said, Scott, you're, you've not seen anything yet. 
from Lexus. Wait till you see what's coming specifically set up for overland travelers. So I think there's two things that are happening. Lexus recognizes that GX, the GX model is has huge penetration into the overland market. They're extremely popular mm-hmm. with overland travelers. Uh, they have really good payload. They drive well. They're super capable off-road because they're based upon the Prado chassis. The other thing is the Land Cruiser is now absent from the Toyota lineup. So the only version of a Land Cruiser we can get in the United States today is an LX600. Lexus literally has that. If you want a a Land Cruiser now in 2022, you're going to have to buy a Lexus. And they're going to take advantage of that opportunity. I think they're going to have a lot of people, um, once they can get the chip stuff and everything all sorted out, they're really struggling with meeting demand uh, because it's such a popular vehicle. So that was very exciting to continue to see Lexus also adopt this. So it's clear that this is something from within the Toyota ecosystem is they're realizing that they already own overlanding in many ways. They want to maintain and grow that ownership within the space. And if you think about it with companies like GM, GMC in particular, building vehicles with AEV specifically for overland travel, Mm -hmm. they're realizing that other manufacturers are trying to take a little bit of their market share. And so Toyota's fighting back, which is competition's great for the consumer. It's great for you and me. It's great for everybody uh, it's listening to yeah. great for everybody listening to this podcast. Well, I think they've seen a lot of influence from Expedition Overland. Yeah. So they they hopped on board with Expedition Overland probably six, seven years ago. Sure. Seems. They've seen that real world uh, proof of concept on how you could build these trucks up, what you can do with them. They had two of Expedition Overland's vehicles in the booth. And from what I understand, Expedition Overland gave them uh, a bit of insight on the new Trail Hunter. Yeah, they were heavily involved with the production of the vehicle. And I I think one of the neat things about the Trail Hunter, which is the new concept that they they revealed, and, and although it was on a... You know the, the the platform. It's it's going to be, it's going to be a whole new truck. And in the booth with those X Overland vehicles on display, we were able to see the Orion Tundra, which is the vehicle that they drove up to Nordcap and drove through their their Nordic series. It, in, it included the Faroe Islands and Iceland, and of course that that whole series of episodes is gonna, that has is going to come out. That soon. has the tray back cap on the back, right? That's correct. Yeah. Well, it has the. Um, it isn't a tray. It is a. It is an in-bed camper made by Alucab. Mm. And the one thing I really like about that Alucab model is it removes the factory tailgate. One of the big challenges of all of these uh, Habitat-style toppers is that they retain the factory tailgate, which is not dust-sealed. So you get into camp and your camper is filled with dust. And people do all kinds of things to try to limit that or remove that problem, but it stays a problem. Still a challenge. Still a real, cha- it's a genuine challenge. Whereas the Alucab model actually removes the tailgate and then it has a fully sealed door. Um, so you end up with a lot less dust on, mm-hmm. the, on the inside. Orion is just a, a really thoughtfully prepared Tundra. You know, it's got, uh, you know, they're the typical CBI, Prinsu rack, CBI bumpers, Prinsu rack winch 35 inch tall uh, tires on there as well. But the one that was the most, I thought it was the most notable and kind of elegantly assembled vehicle in the whole booth was the Sequoia, was the Sequoia that X Overland put together. Simba is the name of that one. And it was just, I mean, the livery was really elegant and clean and super clean, classy. 
Um, you could actually, there was another, another Sequoia next to it that someone, I don't know who else prepared that one, but somebody prepared that one. And you could see the difference in experience between the two builds. Well, you had the Simbo was, I think Simba is much more family oriented, right? So they, and with X Overland, they've got a couple kids and they yep. realize, Hey, we can, we can start to, let's make an Overland vehicle where we can bring everybody along. Yep. Um, and that's, I, I've got a family as well. And so I really appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, so many, so many incredible Overland rigs. It's like, okay, tear out the back seat to put gear in it. And now you take a five person vehicle that's only appropriate for two people. Yeah, sure. Right? And so to see them create something that that is appropriate for a family to still go, yeah. not just not just adventure. I mean that was that's become an, an expedition view. Sure. And then the next the one next to it had the the jet ski on the back. No, that was a little bit oh, further, that was further down. down. That was okay. little, and that one was on thirty sevens. Yeah, that was impressive. which looked which looked really cool. Again, like when we see these vehicles in the booth, it, it oftentimes is a reflection of the experience of the assembler. Mm -hmm. um, and we are we do see. X Overland's vast experience reflected now in their builds. So like, for example, the dual swing out on the back of their Sequoia had minimal weight on it. Yeah. Whereas the one right next to it, it had like the, like the air tank and it had a bunch of extra roto pack. The vehicle will drive terrible because yeah. of all that weight. Oh, one lever, it, leverage one of them had three, it basically had 15 gallons of steel jerry cans. I know. They were beautiful because they're yeah. all powder coated a different color to match the Toyota Stripe. I know. What we look for is we look for, oh, this OEM is beginning to really understand mm -hmm. the needs of our audience. And Toyota, because of their association with X Overland, they're able to do things right from the beginning, which yeah. is really cool. So OEMs in general are becoming more scarce at that event. Yeah. Really, I think we, there was Toyota, uh, Volkswagen, and Nissan. And uh, Jeep. Jeep was there. That's right. Yeah. And they, was there. there was Jeep and then, a, and then the Mopar as well. At a, a large booth. Yeah, the Mopar booth is yeah is where the you'll find the Jeep yeah. project vehicles. And Jeep always does a good job at the event too. They always got some kind of overlandy thing. Yeah, I'm surprised that from a show layout, the Jeep booth is down in the tire hall. Yeah, I wish it was a little bit and different it, spot. It really needs to be up in the yeah, West Hall. I think it would be great. Yeah, and they've been there. They've had the same location for Jeep for forever. It yeah. seems like. But I'd I think love it'd to see it in a different. Be spot. much more appropriate in a different location. Yeah. Especially since the West Hall is now, it feels like 87 miles from the rest of SEMA. So far away. You know, like the first day I was at SEMA, I had over 11,000 steps just at the event. And then the next day I had almost 13,000 steps. Yeah. So like if, it, if you got to go back another... 4,000 steps to get to another booth, You sometimes you choose not to do well, it. Well, so. the truck displays were in the South Hall for so long. Yep. Again, second year in a row, out of force of habit, I initially went to the South Hall. <laughs> and if you're familiar with the convention center, the South Hall and the West Hall are probably a mile and a half apart. At least, yeah. At least, and so yeah. there you go. You, you think you're in one <laughs> yeah. place, and now you got to trek it and yeah. try to get, yeah. get to your meeting on time. Yeah, that can be a challenge for sure. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, 
you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. All right, well, let's, let's pivot a little bit to some products at the event that you thought were standouts or that were interesting. The, the one that you talked about with that tire inflation <clears throat> system sounds really clever. Yeah, I, I have, a, I think there's a special place in my heart for these, uh, these true innovative startup type companies. The products that somebody jotted down on the back of a napkin and then they turned into a reality. Yeah. Um, I have appreciation for the larger companies as well, but I, I think a lot of these um, smaller kind of underdog startups say tend to get they just don't get recognition. And so there were a couple of them that, that I wanted to, to call out specifically. And so there's, there's a company called Airflex, and it's a central tire inflation system that bolts onto your hub. And what I think is neat about it is how long have we always wanted like a central tire inflation system sure. that was practical and easy to use. And I mean, you think of what was it? The, 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 the AMC Hummer, Humvee, the, the right? original AMG yeah. Hummer. Yeah. It had central tire inflation. Yeah. yeah but it's like, and, and that, that always had its problems and it's yep. the only vehicle you could get it on. And then you've had ex- a lot of experience with like Arctic trucks. Yeah. And they run from the fender outside of the vehicle. Right. Down to big, the tire. big loop, that, which works fine when you're just driving on glaciers or right. crossing but Antarctica in the forest. It's not, it just work. rips them off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this system has a, kind of difficult to explain, but if you imagine three metal discs kind of sandwiched together and the inner metal disc bolts to your hub just outside of the, of the rotor mm-hmm. using the stock studs. And then you've got two more discs and, and then the, the wheel itself would bolt onto the outer disc. And so you would have an onboard air system and the airline would go into the center disc and there's a, a seal in there, uh, a sealed bearing um, that allows air to pass through. And it's good for 250 pounds of air pressure. And the air goes into the central disc and then it comes out of the outer disc. And from the outer disc, you would run another airline that goes into the Schrader valve of your yep. your wheel into your tire. Then it has a control module. Right now, it's a wired control module. Within a, in a few months, they're going to have an actual phone app that they can use. And so you can air up, you can air down, you can have five different presets. As you're driving, you can change the air pressure on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the system allows for air to be bled off and... And and put into the tire. Oh, so you so can at the same time deflate on the go down to down to trail pressure yeah. on the go. And the one thing that's always been so cool to me is like the safety feature of that that people don't consider. Oftentimes, when we get a flat, it's just a puncture. It's just like a nail or mm-hmm. some. It's like it's not just blowing air out. This system would allow you to get to the next tire shop without even having to. You know, if you just got a slow leak. Oh, yeah. You could actually keep you could actually just positive keep, pressure. That's into right. The tire. You could just keep pressurizing that's right. the tire until you get to the tire shop to get it swapped out. And we talked about potential failures as well. Yeah. And, and if it did fail, it would be like getting a nail in your tire. Yeah. Um, it would be a slow leak. And then you could actually patch that. But let's say the, the system failed altogether, which it, it's very robust. So mm-hmm. I don't really see that happening. But you can actually disconnect 
the air hose from your Schrader sure. valve and then just pump your tire back up and yep. put a tire cap on it yep. and you're good to go. And you yep. don't have the system connected anymore, but the the tire itself isn't completely reliant upon the installation of the system. Yeah, it's really clever. So, yeah, so you can think about driving through the mountains or the desert, especially the desert, right? You have really deep sand and then you might get into rock and then you mm-hmm. might get into a little bit more hard pack. And so you can change your tire pressure on the go for each situation that you're coming up upon. Yeah, that's really that's really clever. And th- did they talk about um, what applications they have currently designed? So it's a universal um, mounting system. Okay, so, so it would work on a Tacoma and a Wrangler. That's huh? right. It's got, how it's do got they ma- several how do they different holes. Oh, so it matches up with the bolt pattern. That's right. I got you. Yeah, and so it's not just one bolt pattern. I think they have, there are several series of holes on that mounting plate. And he said, you can basically adapt it to just about anything. How cool is that? Yeah. There is Airflex, which I think has a lot of potential. Um, there's another little one, little company called Glue Tread. Um, they've been around for two years or so. It's a sidewall patch and it's just a rubber patch with some fancy glue. And uh, there's an application process of sanding down the the cut and everything. Is um, it applied to the outside or the inside of the, the tire? The outside of the tire. Oh, that's really And that's one of the questions clever. I had for them. And you could apply it to the inside. You'd have to take the tire yeah, off sure. of the wheel. That's always the challenge. Right. And if you if you don't have the, ex- the the knowledge of how to do that and the tools, you need a couple of special tools to do that in the field. But you can stick it on the outside of a tire. And they said it's it's held it's held for weeks of off-road use. So if you were just out on the out on the trail or, you know, traversing a certain section on during an overland trip and you had sure. a sidewall cut, you know, we we remember you know, sidewall cuts, you'd, you'd stitch them up with dental floss and then, yeah, you know, we, stick yeah, you all use the wire and try yeah, to you stitch stick it the up bacons the in there yeah, and exactly. look like, you know, Halloween mask. Right? Yeah. And so now you could just, you know, sand it up, put the glue on the patch, put the patch on there. Um, and it, it sticks and it, it'll last a couple of weeks. Wow. So well, at least get you back to the road or to easily. a tire shop or yeah. something. And they make big patches, of, hmm. you know, small one by one inch patches up to cool. like a four by six inch patch. Interesting. I wonder if they yeah. have applications for motorcycles too. Yeah. And then in the same area, you know, there was Demo Shovels, yep. which, you know, is a fan favorite. We've known about them for years and they, they continue to push innovation with their, with their tools and their mounting systems. Um, so they had a nice display that was, and in fact, they won an award this year. I think they won an innovation award yeah. uh, from SEMA. Yeah. Their new spade, I thought was a really nice development because yeah. um, it, it's much more universally practical for, for camping and backcountry travel because you can use it as a camp shovel. And yeah, it's a small, it's a smaller yeah. platform. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So those were kind of the, the small companies that, that stood out. A little bit bigger company we noticed was, uh, there's a lot of battery companies now. One of the ones that we kind of noticed, uh, especially was anti-gravity batteries. Um, with that, they, they're little, they're a little motor. I know they, they have a lot of different batteries. Like they have the deep cycle series that, that they're really proud of. And, you know, that's kind of their new product line, but they have these motorcycle batteries that have a built-in jump starter. Yeah. And I just bought, it was so funny because I bought one a week and a half ago. Uh, because the Moto Guzzi battery was smoked. And I'm looking at the different batteries and I'm like, holy cow, this anti-gravity thing is amazing. So it has a built-in jump starter. So you just push a button 
And you can jumpstart your own battery with this other little mini built-in battery, kind of like a jumper pack. Yeah. It's super cool. Well, and it's going to save you. It's going to save a ton of money. Yeah. And time. with lithium batteries, you know, if you let them go, which isn't that hard to do on a motorcycle, if you're not riding it regularly, you can really kill a battery pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And the lithiums are hard to bring back to life if you can at all. So with that jumpstarter... At least you've got a chance of getting another couple of years out of this. Yeah, battery. yeah, or or just getting yeah. home if you leave the lights on. Yeah, so that was a good one. Arc, uh, which is an Australian company, they had a really cool new trailer stabilizer jack. We've seen the the trailer stabilizers that just kind of fold down, mm-hmm. and you can you know maybe move them a, a few inches to kind of help level the trailer. They have a it's I think it's the only one on the market now that'll do this. They have a handle that'll go into it with a kind of a, a socket attachment. You can use that stabilizer as a jack and get the trailer wheel completely up off the ground. Oh wow! So changing a trailer tire just became a lot more easy. So you move um, it to another spot on the trailer to do that? No, they're they're hard mounted to the the aft corners. I see of the trailer. I see. Um, and so if you've got the tongue, if you've got the tongue either on the on the vehicle or yeah. the tongue wheel down, yeah, then you can take either corner and jack it up, and so you can get the tire up off the ground to change the change out of a flat tire on a trailer. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, or, or if you're in camp, really you level it level nicely, it even on really uneven terrain. Yeah. So they're the only company that I've seen that has anything like that. That's clever. Um, they're bringing it to the U.S. right now. They have it available in Australia. They have some really keep them in stock. They have some really cool tongue wheels as well. They do lifting wheels. Yeah, yeah a lot are, of double wheels. Yeah, that so help they, with with flotation on soft surfaces and right. stuff like we encounter. Yeah. So there was a couple of them for me that stood out to see an ARB roof tent. It makes so much sense that they would do that. They've they've always had the kind of soft shell, clamshell style tents that were uh, fairly common um, or similar to other tents. Yeah. But now they have their own hard shell tent, uh, and it looks super attractive in this in this really dark gray. Looks like there's plenty of room to have some bedding in there. Look like it was called the Esperance. I think is the name mm. of it. It's a it's a really thoughtful tent. Uh, looks like it's going to be really good quality as well, which that's one of the things that we're we're very mindful of in the rooftop tent market is that there are too many companies that are making tents that are too heavy or they're making them too light duty and they won't hold up to long-term use. Uh, but there are there, there certainly are companies that make really high quality tents like now ARB and iCamper and others, of mm. course. Well, but it really rounds out the offering for ARB as I well. I think so. And they had a really a really uh, handsome roof rack on the back of this Tacoma, or, or a bed rack, excuse me. Really, uh, it was like a one-piece extruded aluminum that was just really impressive looking, mm. um, how, how it was designed and the radiuses on it and everything else. And then out of the back, they had their ARB drawer system but it had a full kitchen set up inside the drawer. It rolled out of the back and it had... Does it come with the kitchen set up? No, you can get that as an option for the drawer. And it had a sink and it had the stove in it and it had i mean it had all of all of the gadgets that you would want in your in your camp kitchen yeah so that and i i've seen that they they introduced it in australia a few years ago but it wasn't available in north america they've always made good drawer systems for yeah, vehicles they now. they have and yeah. now they've got it's a built-in camp kitchen that occupies one of the drawers so i thought that was i thought that was very cool and then I've always been a fan of Red Arc, and I think 
One of the reasons why I like Red Arc products is that they are built to a very high durability standard. One of the problems with most of the RV industry or even marine industry electronics is that they are not built to like a military specification. So they tend to have a fairly high failure rate. Whereas the Red Arc products, they are potted and sealed and they are tested on these vibration tables that are literally shaking them apart mm. like what we would experience at a car. So that is one of the reasons why I have been a fan of Red Arc products. They, but they actually have a military division. They do. I think it's Red Arc Defense. Mm-hmm. And and they, they specialize in in supplying military. Yeah. And you can see it in the product, but they one of the they have this red vision system and one of the challenges with that system was the size of the the control not the display but the controller itself the actual that had the solenoids and it had the switching gear and the capacitors and all those other things in it it was quite large and it required you to be able to access it to make changes and to, to reset the breakers, for example. Whereas they have a new one called the the TVMS Rogue, and it has intelligent, smart relays inside it and smart reset of basically the fusible links. Is that the thin black one? That's right. Very so, low profile. Yeah. So it's probably a third of the size of the one that was used before. So you can tuck it into the right spots, and then you don't have to access it. You can reset the uh, fusible link or the the uh, mechanical link of the protection circuit, you can reset it using the controller or the app. And it's compatible with the larger one as well. That's so you correct. can use it as an add-on. Or you For could, additional circuits. That's yeah. right. You could build either direction, right? That's if, right. You, if you already have the large one, you can add on the smaller low profile. Yep. Or one of the things they, they mentioned to me was that that new thin profile one, it's a little bit lower price point. It is. So yeah. it doesn't do as much as the big one, but not everybody needs that much capability. So it's a nice building block for the consumer. Totally. And really it's just um, what it doesn't do is the amperage rating. So that's the one difference between the two. So the bigger one has 30 amp circuits, Mm. um, which you would need for things like big compressors or really heavy draw accessories like air conditioners and things like that. But if you don't have the need for those, then the 10 or 8 to 10, I can't remember exactly how many, uh, 10 amp circuits are going to be more than enough. Yeah. Um, but well, the, the space the, is much smaller. The need for those big compressors is is kind of going away. Um, I had an interesting conversation with Milwaukee Tool Company yeah. and how they've got their battery operated tools and how so many you know, overlanders and people with vehicles are now carrying their tools instead of the big air compressor with trying to run air tools. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. So those are some of the things that really stood out to me. And I thought, you know, we could kind of end the conversation with what we see for overlanding for the future. um, That is oftentimes a bit of a predictor that we see at the SEMA show. Uh, And I would say that from my perspective, the most encouraging development, because uh, there's a lot of, of misunderstanding about how markets work. And you'll hear someone say like, oh, we're getting close to peak overlanding. Um, and that's just because they they view it from the perspective of, of how they've seen it grow so far. But that's only the tip, the tip of the iceberg. When an industry really starts to grow is when there's adoption by the OEMs. So we're just now at the beginning of adoption of overlanding by the OEMs. Right. So that means to assume that we're 
close to peak overlanding is very naive uh, because once the OEMs get involved, that's when you're going to really see it take off. Now, the the downside to that is then it um, it increases. There's going to be a lot more people on the trails, mm-hmm. um, so there is some there is some consideration around that. And then we're also going to see where a lot of the products. A lot of the OEM vehicle offerings that are overland specific, they may not align with what maybe people that are hardcore overlanders or global or international travelers may expect. So what it means is a broadening of the market. There'll be just as many, if not more, genuine options for around the world travel than we had before. Look at the new Grenadier coming out, for example. Uh, but you're going to see a lot more vehicles that are that will help enable people to do overland travel, but they may not be suitable for the most remote or the most rugged or the most international destinations. But I believe that we are at the very beginning of overlanding really taking on a lot of momentum. Yeah, I think you're. I think the the manufacturers, the OEMs, they're starting to address the evolution of overlanding. You've got this that core overlander, that yeah. core definition of overlanding, which is this worldwide expedition travel. Yeah. Um, the reality is that most consumers don't have the time or the resources to go do a worldwide expedition. Yeah, sure. But they're still interested in overlanding as a principle and a practice. Yep. And they're really interested in all these comfortable products yeah. that make the experience Comfortable better. and capable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so- you start to look at how the consumer is utilizing these products and how they're participating in the activity. And a lot of times they're using these overland practices and products to support their other ambitions. Sure. Uh, Whether they're fly fishermen or mountain bikers, it's all of a sudden the experience becomes more self-sufficient and and more comfortable. And so for the manufacturers to start to address the fact that Hey, these are everyday people going out for a weekend adventure or a week long vacation. Yeah. Um, and they can cater to that. And that's really the bulk of the audience. Uh, which yeah, we've no been, question. we've been addressing that for years through our content, making, making things more attainable for people in, in the inspiring stories that we write and publish. And it's also totally legitimate overland travel. If you're doing vehicle based adventuring, then you're overlanding. It's right. that's the definition of it. You don't have to cross an international border. You don't even have to camp to go overlanding. I mean, there's a, there's, been, right. there's been countries that I've crossed and I would much rather stay in the little villages and interact with the locals. Yeah, you get to experience the of culture. Of course. So it doesn't have to require even going off road either. It's about vehicle based adventure travel. And that means that it is accessible to, to nearly everyone. For me, when I start to see the OEMs providing vehicles from the factory that are really ready to go and do that mm-hmm. um, more so than ever before. That's really exciting. We used to think that the heyday of overland vehicles was in the nineties, but there's more capable. Uh, there's still more to come. There's so much to come. Yeah. And again, to hear Toyota during their press launch at SEMA use overland more times than any other word yeah. is pretty exciting. The other thing I'm noticing is I th- I find that companies are starting to provide complete solutions for people. Yeah. Uh, in the past, they've kind of, you know, kind of dipped their toe in the in the overlanding waters by maybe bringing one or two products to market that could be, you know, applied to a vehicle build. Uh, where now they're kind of saying, all right, how do we address the entire vehicle? How do we address the entire overland experience that somebody's going to have? Sure. And they're they're creating these these very well thoughtful, thought out product solutions um, that, that work well together. Yeah. 
No, we see it across the board and you go buy a vehicle and it's got a built-in, basically a Switch Pro right there in the yeah. dash. It's got it's got the trailer brake controller right there in the dash. It's got accessory points and 12-volt outlets and 120-volt outlets and good tie-downs in the bed. And I just think it's such an exciting, exciting time. And from a business perspective, there's there's been a lot of consolidation. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that are joining forces with complementary products. Yeah. And that's allowing them to create a more seamless offering. Yeah. And I think it could not be a more exciting time for overland travel. And it's to to go to SEMA. I mean, I remember the first SEMA that I went to, I think it was 2004. And I had my Tacoma with a roof tent and I was the only roof tent there. And to now, to now come to, to SEMA uh, in 2022, and you can't go 10 feet without bumping into a roof tent. It's very clear that not only is overlanding a really important part of the aftermarket and of the SEMA show, uh, but it is a really healthy and growing market as well. Yeah, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, I think <laughs> well, some, th- someday it might. I don't know. We, we all do lunar lunar, lander, lunar landers yeah. or something, but everything's got to change. <laughs> yeah, that's but right. I, I think it's become a new, uh, it's solidified itself as an activity. Yeah, for sure. Right. It's not just something that, you know, these guys go do or the small group of people go do. Yeah. It's now like it, it's well-established. It really is. So. Yeah. It's really fun to, fun to see. Well, Brian, any other thoughts that you've got around around SEMA or what you hope to see in future SEMAs? No, you know, I, I was very, I was actually inspired by the quality of offering this yeah. year. Um, I saw that you still see a lot of knockoff products, but I saw, I feel like there were, there were fewer knockoffs yeah. and more kind of representations of genuine ingenuity or good quality product offerings. Yeah. And I hope that that continues uh, yeah. because the consumers deserve it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's inspiring. You know, I, I think next year's SEMA is, you know, I could spend all week at SEMA. I yeah. wish it wasn't in Vegas, but you know, I got like <laughs> I two, three days and I'm done with Vegas. I know but. the only, the only upside for us is only, it's a four hour drive. So yeah, it's yeah. nice and convenient. It is sure. really convenient. But yeah, no, I look forward to next year and, and I look forward to seeing how, what the companies represented at the show is implemented into yeah. the marketplace. Yeah. And, and for those companies that are listening to this podcast, if you want, if you are a new business, if you're coming new into the Overland space, these are things that are really important to Brian and I, that we, we support these new, new innovative companies, uh, these mom and pops that are trying to make it a go. Uh, please reach out to us. You can you can send a press release and reach out directly to Brian. You can reach him Brian at overlandinternational.com and you can uh, you can send him that. You can send him little updates on your vehicle builds. You can ask him about how he how he mows his lawn. Perfect. You can get um, so please everybody that's listening send Brian an email. <laughs> well, great. you know, these you just great. You want to put out my phone number too. <laughs> Um, these little companies are what built the industry. Yeah. And so I, we do have a special appreciation for the ingenuity and we have a, a another big appreciation for the larger companies addressing and, and identifying with the space. Oh, totally. And we're, we're, we started as a small business from scratch. Uh, yeah. From scratch. And we self-funded it. And, you know, Brian, you've been here from the very beginning, which is really awesome. And, and seriously, if you are a new a new company to the space and you'd like to to interact with our team and let us know what you're doing, uh, please reach out because we would we would love to feature 
as long as as it is appropriate for the audience and it's appropriate quality and isn't a direct knockoff of what someone else has put a lot of energy in behind, um, we're going to give it uh, the attention it deserves. So. And we also have two decades of research that we share quite openly yeah. with folks. We've looked into every segment uh, of the market and and consumer usage, and so we have really good ideas on how these can how these participants engage uh, yep. with the activity and with the products. Yes, and thanks, Brian, for being on the podcast Thank again. You. Again, if you want to hear more about Brian as the adventurer, he has spent years of his life living on and sailing around the world. In addition to being a prolific overland traveler as well. Um, so take a listen to Brian and my discussion about our crossing of the Pacific Ocean, which always, is always ready for an adventure. Yeah, which is on the podcast as well. But thanks, Brian, for being on the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. And we thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next time.